Well, uh, one of my favorite television shows happens to be uh, Law and Order, and you know, its uh, popularity just uh, seems to have skyrocketed over the last uh, several years. Now on TV, not only is there the regular Law and Order, but there's Law and Order Criminal Intent and Law and Order SUV, and I think there's one or two others that I can't think of. And uh, In fact, I was noticing reading this week, I guess you can some weeks watch up to 40 episodes of one variety or another of Law and Order on TV every week. Just amazing its popularity. So I got to thinking... What is it about this show that makes it so popular? Why are we so fascinated with it? And I, obviously, I think part of the answer is simply it's the whole mystery of it, trying to solve the crime. But I think it's also this sense of justice that we all have within us, that we were born with, this sense of justice that when, you know, when somebody does something wrong, we like it when they get punished. Uh, if you've watched Law and Order, you know that uh, every episode begins like this. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Yeah, you recognize that, huh? It's, and you know what? Our whole judicial system in America seems to be built on the idea that if I do what I'm supposed to do and I don't do what I'm not supposed to do, then I stay out of trouble. I stay out of jail. Well, let me put on my best announcer's voice. Imagine there was a show that began like this. In God's judicial system, there are two groups that represent the people. The first, the church, polices the people. The second, prosecutes the offenders. This is their story. Because in God's judicial system, we have this idea, at least, a lot of people, that if I don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, if I avoid doing those things, then I stay out of trouble with God. I avoid hell. And if I do enough of the right things, I may earn my way into heaven. That's God's process of law and order. Isn't it? Well, what if people who think that way have it all wrong? What if God's system of law and order is quite different? Well, that's what I want us to spend some time over the next few weeks exploring together, trying to understand what is God's system of law and order, how does it work, and what difference does it make for my life? Now, I realize that as we explore this together, that may on the uh, beginning not sound real exciting, huh? You're probably thinking, you know, Jeff, why don't you go back to the series before and talk some more about pornography or let's talk about relationships or maybe we'd rather even have you talk about our finances again. Well, let me tell you, the subject of God's system of law and order has more impact on our lives probably than any of those other issues. And it's important that we understand how God views His system of law and order. Well, just to put us in the mood, I uh, was uh, kind of looking around for some uh, courtroom humor this week. And I came across some things. I'll be honest, I was looking for some lawyer jokes, but I found some stuff that's even better because they, uh, they really kind of do stuff themselves that's funny. Uh, these are actual, the things I want to read to you are actual uh, from the court reporter in some courtrooms. Now, these things were literally said in a courtroom. Okay, here, here's the first one. The attorney says, Do you know if your daughter has ever been involved in voodoo or the occult? Witness, we both do. Attorney, voodoo? Witness, we do. Attorney, you do? Witness, yes, voodoo. Here's another. The attorney asked, when was the last time you saw the deceased? 
witness at the funeral? Attorney, did he make any comments to you at that time? Here's another one. The defendant says, Judge, I want you to appoint me another lawyer. The judge says, and why is that? The defendant says, because the public defender isn't interested in my case. So the judge addresses the public defendant. Do you have any comments on the defendant's motion? The public defender says, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I wasn't listening. Here's another one. The attorney asks, please state the nature of your relationship to the minor child. The witness says, I'm his mother. Attorney, and you ha- have you been so all of his life? This is real stuff. I didn't make this up. Here's another statement by an attorney. The youngest son, the 20-year-old, how old is he? I want that guy representing me in court. One more. The attorney says, was it you or your brother that was killed in the war? This struggle over the idea of God's judicial system and trying to understand how He sees law and order is not a new issue. In fact, it goes back to the early church and Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, actually writes an entire letter to a group of believers addressing this very issue of God's system of justice. And the book is called Galatians. There you go. Just like in Law and Order. they take you right to the place. Uh, Galatia is a city uh, located in what is today southern Turkey. Now, Paul wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. He wrote a lot of letters that were included in the Bible. But this is the very first letter he ever writes. And he writes on this whole issue of trying to understand God's system of law and order. And that's what I want us to look at today. So we're going to dig into Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let me say a couple things about this series. First, I want to encourage you to try to be here all four weeks of the series because if you miss one of these talks, you're going to miss a big component of the whole picture of what the Bible has to say about this subject. And so if something's going to keep you away for a week, let me encourage you to to go online and download the podcast on iTunes or go to our website and download or listen to it there or order a CD and pick it up. And be sure to try to catch all four so that you get the whole picture of what we're talking about. Second thing is, I want to really encourage you to bring your Bibles during this series. We are going to go through Galatians just almost verse by verse and really dig into this. And I think it'll be really helpful to you if you've got your own Bible. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to pick one up at the entrance as you come in on a Sunday. And if, you, if you're comfortable with this, get your pen out. You want to, make, want to just take some notes right there in your Bible so that as you go back and look at this later, you'll be able to understand what Paul's talking about here. Well, I'm going to look at chapter 1 briefly to begin with this morning to kind of give you an overview. It's kind of the introduction. And then we're going to really jump over to chapter 3. And that's where we're going to hang out for a little while this morning. But chapter 1 begins, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, sent from men, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers with me. Now, understand, there's some significance in what Paul says even in these early words. Because as I'm going to explain in a minute, when you understand what is being dealt with, Paul, the very first thing he does is try to establish his authority, his reason for being able to say the things that he's going to say to these Christ followers. And so immediately he wants them to know, I I am not sent by men, I am being sent by God. My words are not from men, my words are from God. And it's also very significant to notice right in that opening line, he stresses, the fact that he is writing on behalf of Jesus who was raised from the dead. 
And you'll see why that's so important in a minute, maybe. He goes on to the churches in Galatia, that city in southern Turkey. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this next thing is also very significant. Who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Paul immediately wants to establish the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose from the dead. Very significant in the issue that he's going to address. He goes on to say, uh, gave himself to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then he continues in verses 6 and 7. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the One who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Now, what's happening here, let's give you some background. See, Paul had been to the city of Galatia one time before. And he had gone and he had talked about Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, the fact that Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sins. He died in their place and that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he invited them to place their trust in the fact, the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And that by placing their trust in Jesus Christ, by placing their faith in Him, they were receiving salvation. So Paul goes and he teaches that. Many people decide they want to be Christ followers. Paul leaves the city, but close behind him are a group of false teachers. And this often happened as Paul went from city to city. He would go and teach and there would be some false teachers who'd come behind and try to confuse the issue. Try to change people's minds. In fact, let me read verse 7. It talks about that. They're called you by grace, turning to a different Gospel, which is really no Gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the Gospel of Christ. That's these false teachers. And oftentimes, and in this case, these false teachers were actually Jewish people. And so sometimes the Bible calls them the, the Judaizers. And they were these guys that would come along and try to confuse the situation. And in this case, what they were doing was they were coming behind Paul and they were saying to the Galatian Christ followers, you know what? Really... Really, to be able to follow Jesus, you've got to follow the law. It's all about the law. And unless you're willing to obey the law, then you're not really following Jesus. And specifically in this case, they were telling these Galatians who were Gentiles, if you really want to follow Jesus, you need to be circumcised. And if you're not willing to be circumcised, then your faith is not real. It's not genuine. You're not really following Jesus. You've got to perform up to a certain standard. Now, in the rest of this first chapter, then Paul goes on to give his authority for writing this letter. And he goes into that in great detail about why he has the authority. And I encourage you to read that at home later today. And he talks about what his motivation is. He wants them to understand his heart is pure in this. That he simply desires for them to have a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to be in combat and he doesn't want to have to argue over these issues, but he wants them to know the truth. And so he lays all that out and talks then in chapter 3 about what it really means to be a Christ follower. And in chapter 3, Paul talks about what I would call the performance lie. This lie says that God's love for me God's work in my life is based upon my performance. And that if I do enough good, if I avoid doing enough evil, 
If I perform, then I can follow Jesus. Then God will really love me. And if I live up to His standards, then I'll be in good standing. Good standing. Paul says, not so fast, my friend. In fact, listen to what he writes in the beginning in chapter 3. You want to turn over there in your Bible. Galatians 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Now that word foolish really could be translated you spiritually dull or maybe spiritually immature. You're, you don't know the whole story. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Or who has thrown you into this confusion? Who has tried to fool you? Who's uh, put the wool over your eyes? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. That word portrayed is the idea of putting it like on a poster and publicizing. In other words, it's not a secret. Everybody knows that Jesus died on the cross and He rose again. We clearly communicated that to you. There's no doubt about it. You know the truth. Verse 2, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Kind of like Paul says, so all that being true, I've got just one question for you. Did you receive the Spirit or did you become a Christ follower by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Did you begin to follow Jesus by trying to live up to the standard of the law or did you begin to follow Jesus simply because you heard the truth and you placed your trust in what you heard about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and rising again. How did you get to this point? Was it through the law? Or was it through placing your trust in something that is true? Now during the time of Moses, God had handed down the law that they're talking about. It was a set of guidelines that really were given for people's protection. It's like if you ever driven on one of those roads where you know one side is fine because there's rocks and stuff, but the other side there's a guardrail, and beyond the the guardrail is just a cliff that falls off. It seems like forever. And so as you're driving, you're careful, but that guardrail is there for your protection, so that if something would happen, you'd be kept from going over the edge. And that's really why God gave the law in the Old Testament. He gave it to to protect to give us some guidelines, some safety as we live our lives. And Paul says, you know, please understand, the law that God gave you isn't bad. It was given to protect you. But it isn't what saves you. And over time then, the religious leaders had added to the law that God had given. They had added all of this tradition and all of their own rules and all of these rituals. And their idea was that as long as you perform our, by our standards, if you live up to the law, if you live up to our standard, up to these rituals, up to these traditions, then you can earn God's favor. God, God will like you. And you'll stay out of trouble with God. Well, the problem with that is it was based on performance. That God's love for them was dependent upon their performance. And Paul wants them to understand that never has God's love for us been dependent on our performance. Never in history has God's love for His people been dependent upon whether or not they performed. So what is the value or the purpose of the law. 
Well, let's dig a little deeper into that. Let's skip ahead a few verses to Galatians 3, verse 19. And Paul asks that very question. He says, what then was the purpose of the law? And he then goes on to answer his own question. He says, it was added because of transgressions or because of our sin until the seed or Jesus to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Paul says the purpose of the law was put in motion, was to protect you until the coming of Jesus and to help you know and be aware of the sin in your life. He goes a little further in verse 23. He says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law before the coming of Jesus. We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Well, what does all that mean? The word, Galatians 3.24 in the New Living Translation says it this way. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian and teacher to lead us until Christ came. So now, through faith in Christ, we are made right with God. That word in the original language that can be translated guardian or teacher could also be translated maybe a tutor or caregiver, it goes back to a tradition in their time that in most households they had a number of slaves or, or people who worked around the house. And usually one of these slaves or housekeepers who was more mature would be given the responsibility of caring for the children. Uh, he probably would have been around for a while as a, as a servant in their household, and so he would be given the responsibility, you care for the children. And, and by that caring, it meant that he made sure that they you know, got to school safely every day, that they uh, did their homework. This would be a great concept, wouldn't it, parents? Um, that they did their homework. He, he just took care of them and watched after their safety and made sure they did the things. That wasn't a substitute for the parent necessarily, but he took on a lot of responsibility and the master entrusted something very valuable to them, and it was this household servant's job to protect the children. And Paul is making the analogy of saying that prior to the coming of Jesus, the law was put in place to act as a protection, something to guide you, something to help care for you until the coming of Jesus. Until Jesus was to come and pay the penalty for your sins and allow you to have a restored relationship with God. Now, please understand, Paul was not saying that the law can save us. He was not suggesting that prior to the coming of Jesus, the law saved people. Nor was he saying that once Jesus came, the law was of no value. And in fact, it was of great value because it still acts as that protection and that guide for us. Let's dig a little farther. A few more things and then we'll begin to make some application of all of this. Galatians chapter 3, go back to verse 3. Paul says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, you are now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Paul says, Why is it that maybe it was just even weeks ago or just a few months ago, you got it. You began this relationship with God. You became a Christ follower, not by obeying the law, but by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Why now, Paul says, are you trying to go back and 
Do it now by your own human effort. Why are you now acting as though it's all dependent on whether or not you perform up to God's standard? Verse 4, have you suffered so much for nothing? It really was for nothing. And I'm not absolutely certain here, but I think this is a reference to, I would guess these Gentiles, when they made the decision to become a Christ follower, suffered some ridicule. Paul says you were willing to go through all that and now you're going to abandon it and go back to a style, a lifestyle of trying to perform to gain God's favor. Verse 5, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? These Galatian Christ followers were sucked into a way of thinking by the Jewish religious leaders that again said they had to attain God's favor by their own efforts, that God's work in their lives was dependent on their performance, that the power of the Holy Spirit working in them was dependent upon their performance. And Paul says that's not true. The pictures of what happened during the Holocaust and during the war just still are amazing to me and saddening, frightening. You know, over a lot of the gates of the concentration camps, there were these three words that you can see on the screen, and I don't have any idea. I have no background in German. I couldn't begin to tell you how to pronounce those. But I know those three words mean work sets you free or work liberates you. It was a lie that the captors of the Jewish people tried to tell them over and over again. They tried to instill in their Jewish captives this idea that if you work hard enough, you will attain your freedom. And we all know that was a lie and in most cases it was a horrific lie because most of the Jews were killed in those concentration camps. But they kept having it drilled into them. If you work hard enough, you will be set free. And these Jewish teachers and people sometimes in our world have tried to convince people still today, if you work hard enough at performing for God, that's what will set you free. But it's a lie, Paul says. It is not your own human effort. It is not your performance that sets you free. It is placing your trust in Jesus Christ that sets you free. Listen to verse 6. Paul says, consider Abraham. He gives a little illustration for him. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Now, why the reference to Abraham? Well, Abraham in the Jewish culture and even for these Gentiles, people would have been considered kind of the, the spiritual forefather. And so these religious false teachers who came into their presence, I'm sure they held Abraham up as an example and basically said, if you want to belong to the family of Abraham, you've got to earn that right. Paul says, that you know what? That's not the case. Because Abraham's righteousness, Abraham's standing before God was not based on his performance. Abraham's standing with God was based on the fact that he believed. He acted in faith. He placed his trust in God. Verse 8 says, the Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. God knew what He was going to do. He knew that ultimately people would be able to have a relationship with God based on their faith. All nations will be blessed through you, they said of Abraham. Verse 9, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
Paul says, you want to hold Abraham up as an example? That's good. Because he is a good example. His faith, his relationship with God wasn't based on his performance. It was based on him placing his trust in God. Paul also points out that God had said hundreds of years before all of this happened, what would be true of Abraham's faith. And that Abraham's faith would end up being an example to all the world. Look at verse 10. All who are rely on observing the law are under a curse. This is interesting. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Paul points out something very important here. He says, all of us who try to attain God's favor, who try to have a relationship with God based on our performance, are cursed. Why? Because Paul understood no one, no one in all of history has ever been able to live up to God's standard. No one's ever perfectly obeyed the law. None of us have. The only person who's ever obeyed it perfectly is Jesus Christ. That's why He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And so Paul says, if you're going to try to live under the law, just be aware. You can't do it. And ultimately, you'll be cursed. Verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you can't do it on your own. You'll be cursed if you try to live up to the law by yourself. But, Paul says, there is someone named Jesus who took that curse upon Himself and He redeemed you by paying the penalty for your sin and dying on a cross that each of us should have died on because of our sins. Have you ever thought, when was God at His best? Was it in creation? I mean, you look around at what God has created. It's amazing, isn't it? But I'm not sure that was God at His best. Was God at His best when He created human beings? I stood in the hospital room last night of of Kesh and Tabby Van Wagner and looked at their precious little baby. And I'm amazed every time I see a little baby and I think, wow, God, that's incredible how you do that. Was that God at His best? Was God at His best when He wrapped His only Son in flesh and sent Him here to earth and the whole virgin birth thing? Was that God at His best? That was incredible. Now, I'd say God was at His best when He allowed His Son Jesus, His only Son, who had never committed a sin, to go to the cross in our place to redeem us, to die for our sins. That, in my opinion, was God at His best. And Paul, by reminding us of all of that, blows the performance lie right out of the water. I want you to watch this because this makes clear what the real reality is. Child, please. Mm-hmm. Some lying. Some stealing. 
and some acts of kindness here and there. I tried to live a good life. Well, let's see how good. lot of bad things. Yes, I see. But I've done good things too, you know, to offset the bad things. Like one time I cheated on a test, but then I cleaned up trash in the park. Mm-hmm. That should balance out, right? Let's find out. This way. That should have balanced out, right? It should have balanced out. Next. Bio, please. Impressive. Oh yeah, I devoted my entire life to making this world a better place. I dug wells in Africa, I donated blood every month, and I ran an orphanage in India. I mean, I just wish I could have done more. Mm-hmm. And is this your subscription? I only read the article. Church? I was baptized as a baby? Take American Express, right? Next! File, please. Whoa! Somebody's been busy! Well, let's get this over with. Sorry, um, I didn't know he was with you. Okay, step on the scale. Not you. Him. Hey, wait a minute. That is totally not fair. That's why it's called grace. Well, let me ask you, what is in your folder? What's in your folder? There in your weekly update you were given today, there's a kind of a blank sheet that says, looks like a picture of a notebook pad. I want you to take that out. Right now, seriously. And I want you to think back just over this past week. I want you to get your pen out and I want you to write down. I want you to make two lists. On one list, I want you to write down all the things that you did wrong. If you don't want the person next to you to see it, write it in code. Or make a list. What, what did you do wrong this week? What did you do that didn't please God? What was the sin in your life? Make a list of that. And on the other side, I want you to list all of the good things that you did. Now, as you do that, think about this. As you make that list, what if you had to stand on the scales on that meter? What would it read? You see, all of us need a second folder, don't we? We all need a second folder just like He has that says child of God. Because if we're trying to live up just by our own performance, the meter will never read good enough. Listen to what Paul says in verse 26. He writes, You are all 
sons of God or children of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. How do you get the second folder? It is not through your performance. It's through placing your trust in Jesus Christ. By allowing Him to become the leader of your life. Here is the performance truth. I will never be able to do enough good to earn God's favor. I will never be able to keep all of the sin out of my life by myself. It is only when Jesus steps on the scale in my place that the meter is ever going to read good enough. And you know what? Every day, every one of us at some point in life are going to have to stand on the meter. At some point, all of us are going to stand before God. And there will be a declaration of not good enough or good enough. And for those of us who place our trust in Jesus and we get this second folder that says, I am a child of God by faith, the meter will read, good enough. Listen to what he says in verse 27. He says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul says there is a way that you can publicly declare to others that you have placed your trust in Jesus. It's by being baptized. By being clothed with Christ. Some of you wonder, what is this water baptism thing that you talk about occasionally? It is such an incredible thing and its history goes way back in time. In fact, it goes back to the to this whole realm of the Gentile and Jewish people that baptism began with Gentile people who said, you know what, I want to become Jewish. I want to practice the Jewish faith. And so the Jews would have them publicly declare that they were becoming Jewish faith-wise by being immersed or placed under the water. John the Baptist continued this tradition. He was encouraged people to be immersed, to be baptized as a Declaration that they were guilty of sin and trying to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in His ministry, as it was ending, He commanded that everyone who desires to be His follower should be baptized, should be immersed as a way of publicly declaring that they are placing their trust in Jesus Christ. And then as we read through the book of Acts in the early church, every person we find there who says, I want to place my trust in Jesus Christ, They follow that usually immediately by publicly declaring that faith and being baptized or immersed in water. It is an incredible gift that God has given us, an incredible way for us to identify with Him and to say to others, we are placing our trust in You. And some of you today, you need to place your trust in Jesus for the very first time. And you need to publicly declare to others that that's what you're doing. In fact, we're going to do baptisms at our gathering tonight. And some of you, who maybe you haven't even thought about it to this point, need today to decide, you know what, I'm going to place my trust in Jesus. And I'm going to publicly declare that to other people tonight by being baptized, by being immersed in the water and having my sins washed away. Listen to what Paul says in verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are 
of Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Let me close very quickly with this idea. Suppose, and this is a totally made up story, suppose there was a child who had been had grown up in a really difficult home and his life was way out of bounds and life was very difficult and something happened that he lost both of his parents. And suppose my family said, you know what, let's make his name Roger. Roger, we want to invite you into our family. We want to adopt you into our family. Now, as we invited him into our home and he was exposed to, I hope, what is a healthy environment and a loving environment with some clear guidelines, there would be there would be some struggle at first. As he tried to adjust and we had to do a lot of correcting and a lot of training and a lot of teaching, there would be some conflict as he had to learn what those boundaries are, boundaries that are put there for his own protection. But hopefully in that loving environment, his life would begin to change. Now let me ask you, when would he really become part of our family? Once he got everything straightened out and he began to live life according to our standards? Or would he become part of the family that day, the very day that we said to him, Roger, we want you to come into our family. And he would trust us enough to say yes. That would be the moment. And you know what God has said to every one of us? I invite you into my family. And you don't have to fix everything. You don't have to get inside the boundaries of the law to begin with. They're there for your protection. And as you come into my family and you're exposed to some of those things, your life will probably change. And as you're exposed to my love, it will work in your life. But you know what? You're invited just the way you are. You see, all of us will someday stand before God. And if I try to step up on the scales by myself, the meter will always read, not good enough. But if I step up onto those scales, or I'm sorry, if Jesus steps onto those scales in my place, that's when it'll say, good enough. And friends, I'm telling you, that's God's system of law and order. Let's pray together.